Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined not only by my rad, rad co-host, Amy Hollenkamp, RD, but I am so pleased to introduce one of my dear friends and honestly, like one of my favorite herbalists. Here, I've got Thomas Easley. He is a best-selling author, and I didn't tell him I was doing this, but I'm totally plugging his book. <laughs> and you can see, like, this thing is beat up, and it has eight gazillion sticky notes in it. Um, I have had this book for as long as it's been out. I think I got it the first week it came out. But Thomas is not only a best-selling author and an herbalist, but he is the director, right? O- owner, director, both, I suppose, of the mm-hmm. Eclectic School of Herbal Medicine, in what town are you in in North Carolina? Low I know Gap. Low Gap, North Carolina. Thank you. I remembered he was somewhere in my state. But Thomas, I'm so, so excited to have you on the podcast. And we're going to talk all about poops and burps and herbs and everything in between. So uh, welcome to the IBS Freedom Podcast. And guys, what topic would we like to start with, if any? Thomas, can I kick it to you and put you totally on the spot? And Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, thank you for, for having me on your podcast to start with. Um, I am. Uh, I'm ready to to talk about anything. I uh, I don't know that I disclose to you, but I actually have IBS, uh, and uh, yeah. so it's a it's a lived experience for me. And yeah. uh, I have a lot of uh, I've got a lot of visceral understanding of what is going on, and uh, and I've worked with hundreds of uh, clients that have it as well. So um, yeah, I mean. The sky's the limit. What do we What do we want to start with? Yeah. Well, first firsthand experience. Well, I guess I'm curious. So Amy and I both have had IBS before too. Amy was was formerly diagnosed with SIBO. I never got assessed for SIBO back in the day when my gut was a train wreck. Although I speculate maybe I had it. Um, but I'm curious, like what things have really helped your gut specifically? If we could start with that, and then I'm sure we'll chit chat about some of the the various things. Yeah. Um... Well, so uh, herb-wise, uh, triphala has been uh, just uh, an amazing remedy for me. And uh, I think it's one of those formulas that often gets pigeonholed uh, for constipation. And yeah. uh, my IBS uh, tends towards, uh, my, my IBS is largely stress-driven and uh, yeah. tends towards uh, diarrhea. And I think that that triphala has a lot of utility outside of uh, the the constipation narrative. Uh, hmm. You know, it's got some anthraquinone glycosides, it's got some little stimulant laxative uh, bits, but it also has uh, astringency and demulcency hmm. to uh, two kind of key actions uh, that I think of uh, in IBS. You know, I I believe that its uh, its mechanism is. Uh, tissue-based uh, working on uh, astringing uh, loose tissues uh, uh, or leaky tissues. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and also the demulcency is, uh, is soothing. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's a primary herbal remedy of like kind of for my, for my symptomology, but then managing my, my nervous system and uh, emotional mental wellness uh, is uh, the, the biggest thing for me. Yeah, all all the adaptogens and irvines out the wazoo. I can imagine. And- yeah, you know, there. I think that there are a handful of uh, of both nervine tonic and nervine sedative herbs that have uh, an affinity for the digestive system, and those are the ones that tend to 
to work the best for me. You know, if you have, uh, if your physiological uh, symptoms of distress uh, include neck and shoulder tension, you might want to think about blue vervain. Uh, if mm-hmm. uh, your symptoms uh, include head tension and headaches, you might think about skullcap. Well, the herbs that work on our stress response and uh, and nervous system that have an affinity to the gut uh, would be uh, things like uh, wood betony, uh, Stachys oh. uh, botonica is uh, a most excellent nervine tonic. Let me get out and, my notepad, by the way. I, I should be <laughs> scribbling down notes ASAP. All right, wood betony, continue. Well, okay, so so to, to back up a second, uh, I, there are, are, are three distinct categories uh, of, uh, of herbs that work on the nervous system. Right. We've got like uh, nerving stimulants uh, like uh, coffee and uh, green tea and L-Rufro and rhodiola and ginseng uh, that increase uh, sympathetic tone and uh, help us be more alert uh, and process sensory information faster. We have nerving sedatives uh, like kava that uh, uh, that uh, sedate us uh, strongly encourage uh, parasympathetic tone uh, and valerian is uh, is a mixed bag valerian is uh, more of an antispasmodic uh, than uh, okay. a nerving mm-hmm. um, and uh, the preparation is super important so valerian when tinctured fresh has uh, aromatic compounds that uh, that stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. But those same compounds, when they degrade uh, over time while dried, tend to uh, stimulate the sympathetic side of the yeah. autonomic nervous system. So that's why some people can take valerian and get stimulated and other people can take valerian and get sedated. Okay, I was um, telling Amy about that not that long ago and I didn't know the mechanism of why. Well, I. I don't know for sure either. I think that's but, why. But uh, but mm. I tend to find it a more reliable sedative when tinctured fresh than dried. Hmm. Okay. Um, so you know other so kava, blue vervain, motherwort, uh, um, lobelia. There's a there's a lot of nerving sedatives uh, that kind of uh, run the gamut from uh, nudging you towards. Uh, relaxation and surrender versus pushing you towards a relaxation mm. and surrender. But then in, in the middle of those, uh, you have nerving tonics. And nerving tonics uh, are what people think adaptogens are but aren't. Uh, and uh, okay. they they tend to increase your, your stress resiliency okay. without being overtly sedating. And uh, I think that because their action is a little bit more subtle and takes a little bit more time to come through, Americans tend to push towards the overtly sedating and mm-hmm. not the tonifying. And yeah. uh, I find that for the stress response in general, uh, a, uh, a nerving tonic that tonifies uh, our ability to adapt to stress and increases our adaptive flexibility mm-hmm. work better than just the sedatives do. Okay. So and then I'm curious, what would some examples of nervine tonics be? Uh, so ashwagandha. Okay. Fresh skull cap, not dried skull cap. Uh, milky oats, fresh tincture, not dried. 
Uh, both of those have uh, labile compounds that dissipate when drying that are where the magic is at for the tonification mm -hmm. properties. I would uh, classify Damiana as uh, a, a nerving tonic, holy basil as a nerving tonic. Mm -hmm. uh, but then my favorite for uh, folks with IBS uh, that need to improve their adaptive capacity is definitely wood betony. It has uh, such an affinity for uh, the solar plexus area and where we hold mm. tension in our abdomen. Yeah, it's very grounding. It's very good for people that are like spacey, floaty, and still wired and stressed. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's Do I that's probably the wood betony could be used for headaches, or am I getting it mixed up with another herb potentially? No, totally, totally great okay. for headaches. Uh, I think of it as a as a nerving tonic that that helps with all types of stress related conditions. I think that skullcap is maybe a little bit more specific for headaches than wood betony, okay. and uh, wood betony is a little bit more specific for abdominal tension than neck tension. Hmm. Um, okay. But there's enough overlap of where most nervings can have uh, an effect on stress headaches. Nice. Well, yeah, that's a good starting point because I think, God, what is it like at least once an episode, if not more, Amy, we talk about the stress and the vagus nerve and anxiety and the food fear and all of like the more tightly wound you get with this IBS journey, the longer it makes your journey because it impedes your ability to heal when you're all like tense and wound up and and anxious and scared and it it's really hard for us to have a conversation with patients like hey let's add in a new food if they're terrified of adding in a new food so yeah and i think the the trauma of the whole experience of having ibs and going through both conventional and functional models seem to me more trauma inducing so like nikki yeah. said it's like so tightly wound scared they're going to mess something up or make things worse, scared of foods. And there's there's definitely a lot of fear and anxiety. So the more they can build resilience uh, from a nervous system standpoint, from adaptogens, nervines, nerve tonics, which you're talking about, can be really, really important and I think can be very helpful. And I know Nikki and I have talked about too, how like adaptogens are a little bit more of a slow go at times where it takes some time to build up in the system and to really notice the effects. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting that you bring that up because I think in America, we're so used to popping a pill and experiencing that bliss of whatever symptom relief mm -hmm. is supposed to come from the pill. And I think, you know, I've definitely experienced working with people that are like, oh, I've been taking this, not really noticing a difference. I'm like, oh, maybe we just push through a little bit longer and see how you do on it for a decent period of time and then we can better assess. But I think that's such a good point to bring up that in certain cases, herbs do require a longer trial period to really understand how they're affecting your system. Or even like with the tonics, you know, if you're trying to tonify and build up the body, certainly. Right. At least like, and I, I, I will say too, I should have prefaced the episode with this, where Thomas is a bona fide herbalist, I would, I would consider myself sort of his, um, his his junior in a lot of ways, but also semi-internet stalker, because usually what will come of it is that I'm like self-paced studying herbs or reading a book. And then I'll be like, huh, I wonder what the answer to that is. And then I'll go haunt his Facebook group and be like, hey, Thomas, what do you think of this? 
then I go off on my own again. So I don't have nearly as robust a knowledge of herbs as, as you do, but at least the way I've been explaining like nervines and adaptogens, what I do use them with patients is I'll tell people, look, most frequently these are not the herbs where like you take it on a Tuesday and then Wednesday you're like, oh, this is great. Give it like a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And then we should be able to tell if it's moving the needle in the right direction. But sometimes I do have patients where like three days later, they'll call me and be like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. So it's not that that can't happen. It's just in my experience more often, maybe I'm a rotten formulator, but like more often it takes a couple of days or a week or two for people to really see a shift from these sorts of things. I, I think so. I think that, um, so herbs exist on this very wide spectrum from a food to poison. <laughs> yeah, fair. And the herbs that produce a very quick results uh, tend to be much closer to the poison side than mm. the food side. Yeah. But the herbs that tend to uh, create long lasting change uh, tend to be closer to the food side than the poison side. Mm. Okay. And, uh, you know, and a lot of the, the herbs that create instantaneous change uh, have been made into medications. You can still yeah. get a prescription for tincture of belladonna for, uh, you know, your, mm. your uh, mucus filled uh, diarrhea because it will uh, strongly dry up uh, uh, all of your mucosal secretions by, uh, uh, by inhibiting the parasympathetic nervous system in the gut, you know, all of, look at look at all of the pain medications. They're all originally derived from uh, opium, yeah. poppy, uh, and uh, aspirin. What was that? Willow, and, bark you or? know, aspirin from meadowsweet or willow bark, depending upon uh, yeah. who you listen to. Yeah. So a lot of the the very fast acting herbs uh, have been are fast acting because of specific constituents uh, that have been isolated, purified, and turned in medications. One of the most important things that I think people should realize about uh, at least the type of herbalism that I practice, uh, which I would consider to be slow herbalism, like the slow food movement, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. is that uh, gentle doesn't mean weak. And mm. so I tend to to use more gentle, well, I tend to use more gentle herbs than a lot of herbalists do, but I also think it's really important to match the uh, the relative uh, strength of the remedy with the severity of the problem. This goes all the way back to uh, the uh, um, the rules for uh, gaining a license to practice medicine in ancient Baghdad. So uh, we're talking two thousand years ago. If you wanted to practice as a as a well, as a doctor, herbalist, healer, if you wanted to practice as a healer in the marketplace in Baghdad, that's where you'd make the most money. But uh, they had a, a group of practitioners, a council uh, that said, here are the guidelines. Uh, if you use uh, an herb when a food would suffice, uh, or you use uh, a strong herb when a weak herb would suffice, uh, or you use food when a lifestyle change would suffice, then you're not allowed to practice medicine here. You, you know, you've got to use the least intervention possible uh, to gain the change that you need. And, uh, and that's my philosophy. So 
I tend to focus on more gentle remedies uh, for for IBS, like wood betting, like chamomile. Chamomile is a miraculous remedy. I was ask about chamomile, like where on the spectrum of um, like sedating, stimulating versus tonic, where would that fall um, in the, those categories? All of these categories have some subjectivity to them, depending upon the person and the sensitivity of their nervous system. You know, I'm sure you've met some people that uh, look at a cup of coffee and can't sleep for two days. You know, like those people's scales are different. Yeah. Where I would classify chamomile is right across the line from a nerving tonic into nerving sedative. Okay. So, uh, oh, so the most gentle of the nerving sedatives, uh, but not overtly sedating unless you have a very strong preparation or you consume a very large dose. Okay. Um, Which like and, who would probably be doing that at home anyway? Like most people are probably going to use it as a tea unless you are yeah. working with a professional. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the, the volatile compounds in chamomile are strongly antispasmodic. You know, in the IBS world, a lot of people think about peppermint uh, as the uh, peppermint yeah. oil capsules uh, as yeah. the primary spasmolytic to use. Chamomile knocks the socks off of peppermint if it's prepared properly, which means okay. a fresh plant material strongly infused in water or better yet, uh, a strong fresh plant tincture. Okay. Um, great spasmolytic, uh, amazing anti-inflammatory. You get some bitter principles to stimulate uh, digestive secretions. Uh, you get that nudge towards parasympathetic. Uh, and it I think smells it's... freaking amazing. Like even just the sensory experience of it. I was, I, I laughed because I went to an herbal conference that's in North Carolina every year. I went to Medicine from the Earth a couple years ago. And I remember that one of the herbalists kind of like poked fun at people who like buy the shitty, you know, bagged tea mm -hmm. chamomile from like Kroger. Right. And they're like, yeah, you'll never go back to that once you have the real thing. And then lo and behold, I bought some like bulk, loose, dried chamomile flowers. And you just open up the bag and you're like, oh, I'm in a field of flowers and I could just die and go to heaven. Like, it's so amazing. This Even the sensory experience of just making the tea is really lovely too. So, yes. And I wonder if uh, this might not be a great segue into talking a little bit more about sensory experience, the nervous system and digestion. Mm. Yes, let's. Yes. You, so, you go where you want to go, Thomas. We're fine. Right, We're just here right. to like soak up everything. I'm, I'm here for the ride. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Chip Chip's here for the ride. Yeah. Today too. Chip's very into herbs, so. What up, Chip? <laughs> obviously, obviously, our little Chipster is here today. But yeah, so go go ahead and well, follow that thought, Thomas, because I would love to hear your thoughts. So what I have uh, what I have found in my own body and working with clients is uh, that holding space for the cephalic phase for the anticipatory release of. Uh, what is it like a hundred peptides and a 20% increase in gastrin. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot that happens there. I think that a lot of the, the focus in conversations that I hear about that is uh, starts with the uh, food going in the mouth. Mm -hmm. 
And it's totally true. We have, you know, chemoreceptors that we call taste buds that transmit to the brain specific classes of nutrients that are coming in that then adjust our digestive juices to compensate for that. But also, I think that 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 part of digestion begins long before food enters the mouth with the, the, the anticipation of food, the sight of food, the smell of food, with the sensory experience mm-hmm. of, yeah. of food. Yeah. And I really wonder if uh, a lot of the problems that uh, people have with digestion is because we don't engage our senses uh, with our food near to the level that we used to because we don't cook a lot of our own food anymore, right? Like try not engaging your sense of smell when uh, you spend uh, an hour prepping and cooking a meal, right? Uh, I believe that uh, our our sensory input creates anchor points for the uh, anticipatory regulation of the nervous system and especially the autonomic regulation of uh, the stomach and uh, the the beginning stages of chemical digestion despite the uh, the well even without the sense of smell or the sense of taste like we get hungry at cyclic normally fairly specific times mm-hmm. and uh, it's not necessarily because uh, our stomach is empty at that time it's because uh, We've entrained our circadian rhythm to uh, when we're going to eat, right? How does that entrainment happen? How do we, well, I think there's a huge conversation to be had about how nervous system regulation is much more anticipatory than uh, responsive to stimuli. Mm -hmm. Peter Sterling, the father of allostasis, basically argues that uh, our, our, brain does not have enough processing power to deal with the sensory input uh, and and process it on the fly and respond to our changing environment. And instead, it seeks balance by anticipating our reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, we use uh, sensory stimuli to uh, correct the anticipatory algorithm that uh, drives uh, our Hmm. view of reality. And uh, I think that uh, lack of uh, olfactory uh, stimulation from plant compounds because we don't spend as much time in nature and because we don't spend as much time cooking and with our food and using spices, uh, Hmm. I think that that that, uh, is uh, one of the big contributors to nervous system dysregulation that results in distress that creates uh, a lot of digestive symptoms that reinforce the distress that cause the insomnia that aggravate Mm -hmm. the inflammation that cause the pain. You know, it's it's this big, uh, yeah, it's this big self reinforcing uh, cycle that can happen. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I'll throw this out too. I mean, everybody knows that if you want better vagal tone, all you have to do is gargle vigorously for 10 minutes every day of your life. And then closed, closed case done. And I'm being so sarcastic and bitchy right now. But like, this is the kind of stuff that honestly, it certainly is not talked about in conventional medicine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. But also, this is the kind of stuff that's not really talked about in functional medicine and dietetics either. Like, Amy, how many dietitians 
are really talking to their patients about that like anticipatory phase of digestion and like whether your body is prepared to eat. I mean, like how much does that really get talked about in our world? It's not that much and probably not in yeah. the medicine space, Thomas, I would imagine. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's hard. I think we think of, oh, making your food and connecting with your food. Sometimes it's hard to even get clients to take a lunch break. That's like a discussion that that I have around, like even like the anticipating and priming, getting everything ready from a nervous system digestive standpoint is so interesting. But I find that people are so dysregulated from like even a meal timing standpoint. And mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of chaos in their circadian rhythms and patterns that I, I do think that's such an interesting point that there's really, you're losing the experience of it and using all the senses, even before you're eating the food, making your food look appealing. I mean, a lot of our food is so packaged at this point. You're just, it, is the new appeal like how it sounds when you're opening a bag of chips or opening a, a packaged food item? And again, like there's certainly times when I eat some packaged food items. I'm, I'm not oh, guilting sure. anyone, but there's again, plenty of times when I'm I'm making my own food. But yeah, I think that that's such like a, a of an interesting dynamic is like how quick, easy things have gotten in our nervous systems and our bodies are not adapted to really respond well to quick, easy, convenient food experiences and digestive experiences. It just mm. doesn't work well. Yeah. Although uh, yeah. I will... I'll throw this out there and then sorry, I'll let you continue your thought, Thomas. Another thing too, is that I feel like a lot of our patients at least, frankly, don't enjoy their food anymore. Yeah. Because we have a lot of people who work with us where like the pendulum has swung aggressively the other way, where now they're hypervigilant and they're on, you know, AIP or low FODMAP or low FODMAP SCD hybrid or whatever. <laughs> And they're like super keto, low carb. And we have people who are combining different diets or avoiding all these different foods. Like, oh, I can't have tomatoes because of the histamine. And I can't have onions because of the FODMAPs. And I can't have this because of this. And I know for a lot of people who are feeling really stuck, just like the fact that they're not enjoying their food anymore is such a big piece of it. And I just had a patient, I think I talked to her on Friday of last week. And she she was like, yeah, I'm... I'm doing basically the same as last time we talked, but she said, you know, it was weird, Dr. Deneza. My husband and I went out to dinner for our anniversary and I forget what she said. They got like tacos or something or burritos, like nothing especially healthy. And she said, I felt totally fine and normal. And then like another week later, for some reason, like she was running behind, she was late. So her husband was like, oh, just get some Chick-fil-A and bring it home. And she's like, okay, I'm going to pay for this. And then she felt totally fine and normal. And she's like, maybe a lot more of this is my stress around food. And I think it could go both ways where like, there's a lot of people who are not cooking enough and they're not like connecting with their food enough. And then some people, it, it becomes like this obsessive orthorexic behavior where like everything has to be 100% organic and 100% low FODMAP and like, it, it becomes kind of a neuroses in itself and then they become tightly wound and they're not enjoying their food. And honestly, I've had some patients where I've suggested when I think they're receptive to it, like, okay, um, 
one of your homework assignments is you go out to eat like at a restaurant and you just pick something that looks delicious like health be damned if you want to get the pickled pig's feet and the i don't even know what else like you go for it but just pick something on the menu that looks delicious to you and you know that you're going to enjoy and you do that once every two weeks that's part of your homework and it could really be helpful to have people just enjoy their freaking food again too um yeah. so i wanted to make that point as well because i see that pretty commonly yeah i i agree with all of that i'm I'm currently updating my uh, my autoimmune class series, uh, and uh, for years I've talked about uh, you know like not everybody needs to do the AIP, not everybody needs okay. to jump into dietary eliminations. Let's assess people where they're at and what their capacity for change is and how resourced they are. And no matter how many times I say that, uh, it's still difficult to convey. So for the very first time, uh, I've uh, I've added some rigidity to uh, my autoimmune guidelines. Uh, and uh, now my protocol states uh, you can't do any dietary elimination for a minimum of one month uh, where your exclusive focus uh, is on improving nervous system uh, adaptability and uh, improving nutrient density and that can that can i've got i've have that i've got it broken into phases and uh, um and i've got like phase one as a as a one to three month process before you think about eliminating foods uh, mm -hmm. let's focus on improving nervous resiliency improving general vitality and nutrition status uh, and you know we can we can patch symptoms up uh, as needed in that process but uh, yeah. i've seen so many people myself included develop some disordered eating because yeah. of uh, dietary restrictions that then create a ton of distress uh, which then reinforce the mechanisms by which food intolerances often arise exactly. and uh, sometimes eating a box of cookies is the exact type of self-care that you need yeah. for your nervous system despite the effects on on other body systems uh, and mm -hmm. sometimes we have to we have to rebalance that uh, food is fuel versus food is fun equation and find a happier center point uh, yeah and yeah yeah because i think if you're at either end it could be dysfunctional yeah. Like the people, you know, who are not thinking about nutrition whatsoever and they're, I don't even know, like eating ice cream every single day of their lives. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a bit much on yeah. that side. But then again, this this orthorexia idea and this idea of like, I know for me too, like I, I also developed some food issues when I was working on my gut because for me it was like, oh, I got X amount of improvement from eliminating at the time for foods. Mm -hmm. So I must get X amount more improvement <laughs> if I eliminate 10 more foods. And yeah. it was like, I was constantly searching for this food holy grail and thinking, oh, I bet I'm just sensitive to corn and I just don't know it yet. Right. And then I would eliminate corn. Or like, I bet I'm just intolerant to this and I just don't know it yet. And I mm -hmm. thought like, miraculously things were just gonna shift and change and like the veil was gonna be lifted up. And it turned out to be quite a bit more complicated than that and quite a bit more stress-driven than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think that you're right, Nikki. Like, I think the seed gets planted when people are doing low FODMAP or something. They do it initially and like, oh, wow, like I did notice yeah. an effect. So it's a food problem, not yeah. other system problem. And and I And I think to Thomas's point too, like, 
from a a nutrition side of things, like some of these AIP diets, there's no there's no putting things in the context of nutrition. It's all about elimination. There's no discussion around like, are you getting enough vitamins, minerals? Are you getting enough mm-hmm. total carbs or protein or fat? Like it's all, and, and that's the frustrating part. I think as a dietitian, as you have people going to practitioners that aren't necessarily super well-trained in nutrition And then they're saying, they're saying, here's this list of yes and no foods, whatever you do, do not eat anything on the no side, only stick to the yes side. Or the witted, you will die. Right. Without any discussion of like what that means nutritionally or how they're going to actually be able to get what their body needs in that context. Like, I think it's one thing to maybe try a therapeutic diet, but as long as you're guided and like understand what does that actually look like on your plate? But so many people are just off doing, you know, diets sort of on their own based on this yep. list that they were given. And that's where it's, I think, frustrating. Nutrition just tends to take a, a back seat, and nutrition's so key in every body system. So you, people yeah. think they're doing this amazing thing being AIP or low FODMAP or yeah. on a SIBO specific diet. But if they're not getting what their body needs, they can't progress. And like, that's what we see all day long. A lot of times is people not really getting enough nutrition in. Well, and if you think too, like if somebody is, let's say that you have a person who's eating like a pretty standard American diet and say they have like rheumatoid arthritis, say that this person is like massively deficient in like folate and iron and, you know, B12 and then you take that person and you're like, okay, now here's a ton of foods that you can't eat anymore. Right, right. That. Like, unless you help them get their levels up and like understand, oh, hey, you need to get more of these foods. Like the likelihood that their deficiencies will get worse instead of better is very high. If then you take somebody, like if they were already deficient in a bunch of stuff on a very broad diet, then as soon as you constrict them to this little tiny box, it's like the likelihood of that deficiency becoming a bigger problem probably goes up tenfold. And now you have like the orthorexia patterns and they're like obsessing over the good and the bad, like the red and the green foods. And it's just, it turns into such a clusterfuck after a while. So I'm glad that we're yeah. at this point because I think it's valuable. Yeah. For sure. And I think that to, uh understanding the purpose of dietary restrictions is really important so you mm-hmm. so you understand where the flexible areas are and where they aren't uh, right I, I was just talking with uh, my current group of full-time students um, last week about the AIP diet uh, and mm-hmm. somebody said well how do you get enough protein if you do a vegan AIP diet uh, and I said well it's difficult yeah, don't to- do that but uh, you can, if you tolerate hemp seeds, and you, you can get protein there, and uh, and you can also get good protein from mung dal. And, uh, and they said, but that's a legume. You can't have a legume on the AIP. And I said, but why? In, in mung dal, the, the pea is split and skint. And you've removed uh, almost all lectins, uh, almost all phytates, uh, and you have just uh, pure starch and protein left. Uh, 
uh, with very little immunogenic content, uh, I think that's totally appropriate to, as, a, as an exception to uh, AIP if you're vegan and need to get extra protein in, you know? So like understanding mechanisms and why I yeah. think is, is super important. And that's not something that you're going to get from a list, at, at least not any list that I've seen. It's something that, yeah. you know, you, you, the list is a starting place and then you look into why and mechanisms and exceptions and uh, yeah, like you tweak it and you troubleshoot and figure out what works for the individual instead of this rigid regimented, like these are good, these are bad end of story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you can't have mustard because mustard comes from a seed and all seeds are eliminated. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> like, uh, oh, yeah. Eat mustard. <laughs> yeah. It takes so much effort to uh, write out every possible exception that I'm guessing that's why nobody's done it. That's why I haven't done it. Uh, but uh, but somebody needs to uh, talk about the, the caveats and the nuance uh, and the like, why this might be allowed and in what situations. And, yeah. you know, like I, I commonly modify AIP to allow for white rice. Uh, and I've seen uh -huh. one case out of hundreds of people that I've guided through the AIP yeah. where white rice was problematic. Uh, uh, so, yeah, anytime we talk about food eliminations, uh, I think if it is based on a black and white list, uh, you should probably push it away until you understand why and how to make the exceptions. and uh, yeah. Or you have some guidance or somebody that you can at least bounce ideas off of. Right. It could be, you know, somebody could be on AIP and then they could think, oh, but like gluten's okay for me, right? And then they come, you know, and they ask one of us like, oh, right. gluten's okay for me, right? And we could give them the honest opinion, like, no. <laughs> like that's yeah. what you probably need to really give a go. Versus, right. you know, could I have some mustard? With the legal command, like eat the mustard, whatever. Yeah. Um, yep. I, I think that there's a lot of rigidity and a lot of dogma on the internet and probably every other podcast for that matter. But usually we're big fans of trying to have a broad diet and try to spare some of your sanity whenever possible. Because, um, like, I don't know, you only get one ride on this rock hurling through space, as far as I can tell. So I'm going to make the most of it. So like yeah. I have, I have my, you know, I've got like snacks in the office. I've got like cashews and pistachios and I've got my inulin and mm -hmm. I also have a big old bar of chocolate and I'm going to have a little bit of sugar, heaven forbid, every now and then. But, you know, yeah. if that's the one thing that I have every now and then, then so be it. I'm not really worried about it. And I'm not I even mean... worried about my definition of now and then either. Like now and then could be every day. <laughs> depending on the week or it could be once a week depending on the week and i don't mm -hmm. really care yeah i uh it not infrequently recommend that uh that clients have a, a minimum of one ounce of chocolate a day oh uh, you know it's uh if if chocolate and uh, coffee and so many or other things that are normalized uh, in our culture if they were, you know, if they were discovered, if they'd never been discovered and they were discovered today and uh, all of the research that we have uh, developed from their recent discovery, we would totally put them in the same category as uh, goji berries and noni fruit and all of the superfoods, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like they're, they're amazing. 
and also have probably radically altered the course of the evolution of our species, uh, which is, um, yeah. I, I don't know if you've uh, ever uh, uh, heard about the uh, um, the influence of chocolate and uh, coffee on Western philosophy, mm-hmm. but uh, Descartes, uh, I think therefore I am, right? Mm-hmm. Descartes began his uh, exploration of philosophy at the same time that uh, coffee houses opened up in Europe after after discovering uh, coffee and uh, chocolate in the Americas. And uh, he's reported to have uh, consumed between 40 and 60 cups a day of uh, dark chocolate coffee uh, mixtures. And uh, I could tell, like, after drinking a pot of coffee, my mind is racing so much, I would completely discount what's going on in my body and only consider my thoughts to be valid. I think, therefore, I am. I, there's an uh, there's an argument to be made uh, that uh, these plants have changed uh, the course of human history because of their psychoactive influences. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I love both coffee and chocolate. So I'm a big fan of chocolate. I love the smell of coffee, but I can't stand the taste. Unfortunately, I actually kind of I wish I was a coffee drinker mm-hmm. because I've seen the studies that like coffee drinkers are less likely to get dementia. And it has polyphenols in it that are good for the microbiome. And dare I say, did we just segue into one of the topics we meant to cover anyway? I think, I think so. we just did. But, you know, I have this um, I have this worksheet that I give a lot of my patients where it's like a, a nutritional diversity tracker. Mm. And it's just all the foods I could think of or Google on one sheet of paper. <laughs> Literally, like a list of vegetables, A to Z, fruits, mm. A to Z gluten-free grains, A to Z, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, and then like a miscellaneous category. And their Mm -hmm. goal is to circle things every day for seven days. And their goal is to get up to 30 or 40 points for diversity sake for the microbiome. And I put coffee and I put chocolate on there and I put exercise. Like, no, these aren't plant foods. And the research paper I was basing this tool off of revolved around unique plant foods or plant fibers Mm -hmm. during the week. But if exercises increases microbiome diversity, then yeah, you got a point for exercising. Why the heck not? Or like if chocolate has been shown to be full of polyphenols and feed the good gut bacteria, then absolutely. You know what? I I will show you. When I say a large bar, I mean like one of these Trader Joe's (laughs) pound plus. I didn't mean like a normal chocolate bar, by the way, that I keep in my office. But, you know, like I'm going to give myself a metaphorical point when I have a piece of my giant chocolate bar. I, I let me let me show you my favorite uh, theobromine caffeine. Uh, oh. This is like a fun little show and tell. Okay, so uh, if you don't like coffee, but you like the effects of uh, caffeine and theobromine, then I might suggest uh, the yeah, brand yeah. is Ya Ya Ya, and okay. this is American Yopon. And uh, and Yopon is the only North American source uh, of. Uh, caffeine and theobromine it grows all over the south it's a holly family and it's it's a very closely related to mate from south america okay um but it's got about an equal mixture of theobromine and caffeine and uh, it has almost no astringency the taste Mm -hmm. is pleasant it won't dry you out uh, 
It is uh, my current favorite uh, nootropic to help me with the focus and, and energy. Intriguing. Um, I will be ordering some after we hang up. That's it's uh, it's it's also sustainable. You know, I, I think about the the impact of uh, coffee and chocolate mm. uh, on uh, the environment uh, and the the people involved that are often poorly compensated. Mm -hmm. What I love about this is, uh, you know, it grows all around. The, this company does a great job of, uh, of drying and mm. roasting and mixing with other herbs. Uh, so super sustainable and also, Interesting. yeah, gives you the, the magic of coffee and chocolate without the, the emotional uh, connection to the, the deforestation and, uh, you know, all of the things that go yeah. along. I love the name too. Like, I feel like if I drank it, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd have like my little mug or something. Do that little wiggle when I get my Right, right. Um, funny enough, I just did a Google search to pull it up because I didn't want to forget about it. And mm -hmm. you get some interesting YouTube videos at the top of your Google search when you pull up just yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to go to drinkyayaya.com to actually pull up this particular product. But it looked like there was some, I don't know, like dance YouTube videos or something. Probably. Music probably. videos or something. So, and maybe they're doing the, the Amy Holland camp little shoulder roll in, in yeah. the process. But uh, I'll have to go back and revisit that Google search later and see what those are all about. But yeah, that's really intriguing. And that, you know, just a minor segue, neither here nor there, but um, you, we've talked a little bit back and forth about kudzu. And mm -hmm. I'm really intrigued by using that medicinally. I don't really know what to do with the damn stuff right now. But I need to learn more about it, like find some recordings of some lectures or something. But I really intrigued by kudzu, because for those of you who don't live in the South, it's what, it, what do they call it? The vine that ate the South. It's mm -hmm. a plant that just grows like a freaking weed and what it can grow like a foot a day. Yep. But it can be used as medicine, either the roots or the leaves. I mean, you can talk about that. But can we segue just for a moment on kudzu? Yeah. And then we can go back to polyphenol talk because I definitely want to cover the polyphenol thing too. Sure. So, uh, so it's normally the root of kudzu that's used for medicine. The blossoms of kudzu make a very tasty jelly that I love. Hmm. The, um, the, the use of the roots comes from traditional Chinese medicine where, hmm. uh, where kudzu is native. Um, and uh, it's used for dryness and tension in the neck is its specific indication. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it has some structural applications, uh, uh, you know, anytime you go to, to palpate someone's neck and the fascia feels uh, not just tight, but like atrophied and dried. I think of yeah. uh, of kudzu for that. Uh, it's very good for uh, back of the head headaches, uh, mm -hmm. uh, secondary to fever. So it's very popular okay. in TCM for things that are edging towards like meningitis neck pain, and it might even have mm -hmm. some immune okay. modulating uh, activities to it. Uh, it's also a really rich source of uh, prebiotics and uh, has uh, a, a a demulse and a soothing, calming action on inflamed gut tissue. So it's got a pretty wide utility. And then one of the more interesting uh, uses for it that's, that's modern is uh, 
some small studies from Japan showing that uh, it uh, causes a voluntary decrease in alcohol consumption in people that uh, oh. that are consuming too much alcohol. Yeah, I I, I think true. of it when people are like uh, fried and dried and compensating with booze. Okay, I like that that way of say fried and dried. I'm gonna have to yeah. remember that. Yeah, I think I wonder. And maybe I could ask you this later, um, but I wonder if I could find like a, a person who is harvesting it here in the southeastern United States. And, you know, like we might as well chop it down. Nobody likes it here and it's mm -hmm. not native to our country. So I wonder if we could find somebody who's like sustainably harvesting it and then I could purchase it from them. Um, yeah, I'm sure you could. The the roots, the, the older the plant is, the bigger the roots get. Uh, so uh, I've I've literally pulled hundred pound roots out of the ground. Uh, and uh, and so uh, it's easiest to harvest uh, when you happen to have a bulldozer clearing it out uh, and exposing the massive okay. roots that you can, uh, uh, unless it's a younger patch and then you can easily harvest the younger roots too. Business opportunity. Okay, we will all go in, we'll buy a bulldozer and we'll just like, we'll just drive around North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina and we'll just, we'll plow up the kudzu root and then we'll package it up and. And you have no idea how much uh, I want a bulldozer. So yes, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll hope that Santa is listening to this podcast right? episode and that you could get your bulldozer someday. If I could, if I could swing it, if I find a bulldozer for a good deal, I'll let you know. Okay, perfect. Uh, well, let's go back to the polyphenol talk because that was actually something that I had on my radar that I really wanted to talk about. So um, polyphenols as prebiotics for the good microbiota is something that I know like we think about from food. I don't know if I really articulate it to my patients a lot necessarily, because sometimes there's a balance between like, <laughs> shut up lady, I just want to get better. I don't need to know all the things. And the people who are like, I need to know everything, send me the PubMed ID to the articles you referenced. Um, but yeah, if you could speak a little bit on that, either from foods or plant medicines or both. Yeah. So I am of the opinion that many herbs and foods exert their systemic influence on the body, not because the compounds are absorbing into the bloodstream and diffusing into mm -hmm. tissues and, you know, stimulating receptors, but because of their impact on the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that is a, a much needed conversation and totally reasonable. What what just bugs the snot out of me is uh, is uh, like uh, the whole black pepper and turmeric thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, well, your curcumin doesn't uh, absorb, like you only get 1% absorption, so you have to take piperine to get your curcumin to absorb. Well, that's just bullshit. Uh, like. <laughs> Number one, who says uh, that curcumin and curcuminoids are the most important constituents? Mm -hmm. When we have animal studies showing that curcumin-free turmeric extracts uh, decrease inflammation in mice just as much as curcumin does. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if it's not just the curcumin, then why are we trying to get that constituent to absorb? And if it is the curcumin and it doesn't absorb well, how does it exert an anti-inflammatory influence with such poor absorption? 
Well, it turns out that it strongly shifts the microbiome and uh, the, oh, what are the two big uh, phylas? The firma, was it firmicutes and mm. uh, bacteriodides? Um, firmicutes and bacteroidetes. Yeah. There you go. The words that I can never say. Uh, so <laughs> the, um, the, the, the polyphenols in general and uh, polyphenol compounds like curcumin mm. strongly boost uh, the B phyla and, uh, and say, say that word for me again. Uh, bacteroidetes. Bacteroidetes. I think, or am I thinking of the genre? Hold on, now I'm cross-checking going to myself. Am I thinking of the genre or the, hold on, I'm going to answer right now. Let me pull something up. Because the thing that drives me crazy, and part of maybe why you don't remember it either, is that um, the phylum, the class, and the species names are like annoyingly similar for those bacteria. So there's Bacteroidetes, Bacteroides, and Bacteroidea. And it drives me out, out of my mind. So hold on, I'm going to definitively answer this because yes, I'm looking it up. Hashtag gut expert. Hashtag don't care. Um, yes, Bacteroidetes is the phylum. Bacteroidea is the class, and um, Bacteroides, it would be like the name of the individual in this uh, individual species. So Bacteroidetes, I stick with my original opinion. Continue. So, so polyphenols tend to boost the Bacteroidetes, uh, and, uh, and, you know, that, that ratio seems to be most uh, imbalanced when we have low fiber diet diet so when we uh, uh you know when we have high fat high protein low fiber and uh, the 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 microbiome uh patterns uh, in uh, obesity and diabetes uh, are to me patterns uh, directly resulted from uh, stress low fiber and low polyphenols uh so uh what i love is that while uh, while most of your prebiotic fibers uh, just kind of feed everything. The selective prebiotic action of uh, polyphenols uh, is profound. And uh, I think there's even an argument to be made that uh, a lot of the symptoms of uh, food intolerances uh, come from uh, selective prebiotic actions uh, that we don't fully comprehend or that we haven't even started to comprehend really um you know it makes sense for me that uh, because uh, plants growing in the dirt create compounds uh, that uh, build specific microbial associations uh, yeah. in the ground uh, yeah. that those same compounds would be very selective uh, in their action in our body as well and so, uh, so plants are producing their medicinal compounds, not for our purpose, uh, uh, but uh, for their own purposes uh, to, to yeah. gain more nutrients. Uh, and uh, what nature shows us time and time again is that uh, cooperative uh, work uh, instead of uh, mm. isolated work uh, is what makes everything thrive. So we have these plants that are creating these chemical constituents uh, that uh, are are supporting specific fungi and bacteria in the soil uh, by feeding them. Uh, and then uh, they do uh, a similar thing in, in our body. And if we happen to have uh, uh, a dysbiosis, uh, then it makes sense to me that uh, 
uh, that the the specific compounds in uh, gluten-containing grains uh, might feed a particular mm-hmm. kind of uh, of bacterial or fungal species that could be then creating issues. Um, kind of this, you know, the the inverse of blueberries are good for your gut uh, is uh, some foods uh, might feed species that create undesirable symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where I'm at uh, is uh, giving uh, clients uh, a list of uh, polyphenol rich uh, fruits and vegetables uh, mm-hmm. with the amounts uh, and saying, uh, I need you to shoot for like 1500 milligrams a day minimum of, uh, of polyphenols. Okay. Here's uh, some common foods uh, that you can do it with. For a lot of years, I just said, uh, eat three ounces of blueberries a day. And now I'm like, actually, olives are a great source. Uh, And, uh, you know, there are all of these other currants are a great source. And there are all of these other things. So, yeah, I am uh, I'm really into the idea that uh, a lot of herbs uh, exert their action by selectively feeding or suppressing a particular uh, species uh, of our of our microbiome and polyphenols seem to be on the whole uh, very supportive of a more balanced immune response uh, uh, of a of a less inflammatory response Mm -hmm. also uh, i love uh, coffee and chocolate and blueberries and so i get to i get to eat more of my yeah, I love I it. Well, you know, I, I, I'm in agreement with that. And I think um, I like that idea of kind of giving people a, a list and saying, all right, have at it and giving them some variety. Because if you think too, telling people to just eat a handful of blueberries a day versus maybe they eat blueberries on Monday and olives on Tuesday and I don't even know, like, et cetera, et cetera. And if yeah. they have a wider variety of the polyphenols, then maybe they're going to get some synergy from the different polyphenols acting together to some degree. And I wonder that too, if if I may, I'll kind of bring up a topic that I think I already know your opinion on if I had to guess. Um, but that is, I've noticed that particularly in the quote unquote functional medicine space and, to, and definitely in the integrative medicine space and to some extent, even like even naturopaths sometimes will fall prey to this. But I've noticed that there's again like the the curcumin idea like this idea that we need to extract out the one constituent the one thing and you know so many functional medicine or integrated medicine people have their patients just taking capsules of berberine or capsules of oregano oil or capsules of allicin and it's like it, it always makes me pause and wonder all right would you be better off doing the whole plant, or maybe like, do you need to take the fancy schmancy $60 Allison capsules to kill your methane SIBO? Or would you be better off keeping the damn garlic in your diet and not bothering with the low FODMAP thing? And then you can get some antimicrobials and antioxidants and probably a lot of other compounds that are synergistic through food if you were to just eat the freaking garlic. But I see that a lot with herbal medicine where like, I think that herbalists usually are more hip with the synergy of the plants and how it, how multiple plants will work together and how different compounds within the same plant will work together versus, and unfortunately, I think that my field tends to fall prey a little bit more to like an allopathic model of herbal medicine where it's very just like, here's the active part of it. We'll put it in a capsule and then here you go. And I, I suspect that you agree with me that that's not necessarily how these plants 
shine the best? Yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with green allopathy. There is something very wrong with the green allopathy being marketed as holistic, right? Uh, so if we think of herbs on the spectrum from uh, food to poison, yeah. the preparation of the plant uh, can shift it one way or the other. Mm. So uh, like you probably wouldn't sit down and uh, eat an entire raw onion, but you don't know you, me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you took that onion and uh, put a little bouillon and brown sugar and popped it in the oven and baked it, you would transform a, a very potent medicinal only remedy into a food. Mm -hmm. The same can happen the other way. Barberry is a fairly gentle berberine containing remedy. It is best suited for mild to moderate imbalances. Standardized berberine is a very strong remedy. It is best suited for more severe imbalances. You know, it's we're, we're, we're just trying to match the relative strength of the remedy to the severity of the problem. You don't tell somebody that uh, just got into a car wreck and broke their leg to go take some willow bark. You say, here's some freaking pain relievers. Right. Here's some opioids, uh, you know, we'll help you. We'll, we'll decrease the strength of we'll, we'll take you off of those and get you on some other things uh, as you get better. Yeah. But the we'll severity of the problem. When we get there. Yeah. Oh, uh, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't tell someone that had the sniffles or a vague sense of unease that they needed belladonna, henbane, gelsimium, like our, our, our low dose botanicals with a high potential for toxicity. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've got to match the, the problem to the remedy. And uh, when you standardize and concentrate something, uh, you no longer have the whole plant and therefore shouldn't use it like the whole plant. You've changed, you've changed the remedy. I think berberine's great. I put uh, people on standardized berberine for uh, insulin resistance fairly mm -hmm. regularly. Yeah. Um, also, I think that uh, barberry tincture is a much better remedy for increasing stomach acid production than berberine is hmm. because uh, you're engaging your sense of taste. Uh, you know, those bitter receptors are signaling to your brain and you're getting... I was going to say it tastes gross, doesn't it? It's, it, it's bitter, yeah. But we have... A, I, I don't think bitter is gross. I think bitter is bitter. Said like a true herbalist, folks. <laughs> Continue. Uh, yes. If you think uh, like a uh, radicchio is bitter, then you probably shouldn't start with barberry. You should probably start with a more mild bitter than barberry, which is a, I would classify as moderately bitter in taste. Um, but I also think that we have uh, as a culture, a raging bitter taste receptor uh, stimulation deficiency. Uh, we, we bred the bitterness uh, out of all of our foods. The lettuce that you ate 100 years ago is uh, like, you know, the most bitter arugula you could get now. Uh, and, uh, and iceberg didn't exist. Like, in all of our foods, uh, 
we have uh, selectively bred the medicinal constituents uh, to be less yeah. and uh, the the sugar to be more or the starch to be more which makes total sense a hundred years ago when uh, when our culture had a raging uh, uh, or at least chance of raging calorie deficiency but uh, calorie deficiency isn't the big issue anymore it's a uh, it's phytochemical deficiency and uh, and micronutrient deficiency not macronutrient deficiencies yeah. uh, so I have no idea where I started with that, other than to say that uh, you've got to match the strength of the remedy to the severity yeah. of the problem, uh, and you should eat more bitter things. Yeah. Well, and I was yeah. going to point out, too, I, I liked what you had talked about with, um, you know, like it, if you if you used an herb when a food would have sufficed, then no practice for you. Yeah. And if you use a food when a lifestyle change would have sufficed, like you don't get to practice anymore. And to that point, literally... 99% of conventional medicine doctors and probably 95% of functional medicine doctors would not be allowed to practice probably if I had to guess. I, I um, mean, and, and 80 to 90% of herbalists too. Like uh, it's yeah. not, uh, it's a cultural thing that has influenced multiple systems of medicine. Yeah. Um, but the, the same type of, uh, of uh, cultural uh, unwinding that uh, can facilitate more more change and relief of disease I think can also influence systems of medicine you know we we I believe need to uh, move away from a disease model that is focused on uh, on acute disease and how we respond to it uh, and uh, towards a wellness model that is uh, focused on foundational actions and mechanisms that we all need to build health and vitality. Um, so I, I think it's a, a cultural thing and uh, I, I have very strong opinions on, uh, well, so, I developed what I call uh, uh, functional herbalism based on uh, this idea that uh, we need a little bit of, uh, of structure to uh, our systematic approach so that we aren't all over the place. And that structure can't come strictly from traditional herbalism because we as a people are different than when traditional herbalism evolved as a system of medicine. Uh, and uh, so yeah, in my system, I uh, I talk about uh, uh, pretty extensively the realm of health, the realm of adaptation, and the realm of disease, and uh, how they're distinctly different areas that require distinctly different mindsets and approaches. And uh, I think modern medicine is great at overt pathology. I Absolutely. think that they suck at uh, identifying uh, the adaptations uh, that precede the overt pathology and chronic disease by decades. Uh, and I think that, that they have no clue that uh, the realm of health building actually exists. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, I think that, uh, that our focus uh, shouldn't ignore 
pathology and, uh, you know, and allopathy helps that and green allopathy. And, you know, we totally need to address disease, but we also need to talk about uh, imbalance, dysfunction, adaptation. And we need to talk about the fact that, like, uh, doesn't matter who you are, you need uh, adequate calories and adequate nutrients uh, to be healthy. You need uh, a community support, social networks. Uh, you need other people to be healthy. You need adequate sleep uh, to be healthy. You need yeah. adequate movement uh, to be healthy. And if you're ignoring those uh, foundations of health, uh, then you're just going to play whack-a-mole with everything else. So. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I'm yeah. super talky and rambly. Sorry about well, that. Feel free to, to focus me back in. No, right, right. A, that's the glory of the podcast. We just get to talk. Um, uh, so by the way, time check real quick. Amy, how much longer do you have to stay with us until you need to take Chipster to the vet? I have about 20 minutes. The vet's like five minutes away, so it's not, okay, perfect. It's not far. Do we have time to pick Thomas's brain about parietal cells a bit and like yeah, I did. Because I, I did want to ask him too, um, kind of a follow-up. You had mentioned bitters with the Barbary. Do you have any other bitters that you like from a digestive standpoint, like that you use? Yeah, so um, I <laughs> love, like, yes, yeah. uh, hundreds uh, of yes. plants that I love uh, using as bitter digestive stimulants. Uh, yeah. Typically, I think well, that people should start their bitters no, with right, the, the more right. gentle food-based, like dandelion. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, David Winston, a, a friend of mine, kind of uh, created this uh, this bitter digestive bitter guideline away, so uh, for formulation so that that he calls DOPA, dandelion, orange peel, angelica. Yeah, I did. I did want to ask dandelion, him too. orange um, peel, kind of angelica, and peppermint as a basic digestive like bitters blend. I love throwing uh, uh, blessed thistle into yes. my uh, digestive bitters. It's super sustainable. I love artichoke leaf uh, in my digestive bitters. Super sustainable. Um, I love gentian in my bitters, but much less sustainable. Yeah. So I typically start with like, you know, dandelion, burdock, artichoke, uh, and and use those as the core bitters. And then most bitter formulas need uh, a little something aromatic, carminative to uh, to add to them. And orange pill and peppermint are are frequently part of my basic bitters formula. Cool. Love also, a bitter, bitter green salad before a meal does the same purpose. Mm -hmm. um, what about, do you ever use um, andrographis as a digestive bitter? Because that is one of the nastiest herbs I've ever tasted in my life. <laughs> it is so bitter. But I know it, it's it is... more like for immune purposes, typically, right? Or at least that's, I... that's my understanding of it, at least. Yeah, so so it is totally pigeonholed as a, a immune herb, and yet uh, the compounds that in petri dishes stimulate the immune system don't absorb; they uh, mm -hmm. interact with the microbiome. So uh, I think that that it is a a good gut remedy in and and kind of digestive bitter. Uh, more so than a direct uh, immune stimulant. Uh, 
Okay. It's also too intense for noobs. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, only for seasoned uh, bitter takers. Uh, it's nasty. And uh, if you if you think that Andrographis uh, is bitter, you should uh, try a, a fairly rare herb called Picoriza. Okay. It uh, um, is uh, more bitter and it lingers in your mouth for ten times as long. Uh, <laughs> same thing with uh, uh, Cryptolepis. Okay. which is a very strong uh, anti-malarial, antimicrobial from Africa that's finally okay. gaining some popularity. Okay. Those are those are two herbs that I would classify as more bitter than andrographis. Note to self, not for me. <laughs> to be clear, the reason why I don't like coffee is because I think it tastes bitter. Oh my God. <laughs> and similarly, I will not drink beer because I think that all beer is bitter. And my husband loves like really hoppy beer in particular. Okay. And I'm just like, no. No. So I would I would say that either you are a super taster, which around 10 percent of the population has many more bitter receptors than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Or you have a raging bitter deficiency. One of the two. Uh, (laughs) (gasps) I hope you're a super you're I would just say you're a super taster, Nikki. (laughs) I'm not fussy. I, I know about the super taster thing and I'm not especially fussy over like most foods I like at least somewhat. Um, like my body can't do gluten or dairy, so I can't do those for medical reasons. But like other than I don't like coffee or beer and other than I really don't understand why people eat um, eggplant. But that's where I'm just like a texture mm-hmm. thing. But it's like weird. pretty much everything else I will eat um, and I'm otherwise not too fussy. So I'm kind of leading towards I might just have a raging bitter deficiency and maybe I'm not <laughs> super taster because aren't super tasters normally like fussy about the fruits and vegetables that they eat? I think so. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think I'm just doomed. I need Do you to... have enlarged uh, circumvallate papillae on the back of your tongue? I don't know. Okay. Well, just uh, I... I've been making interesting associations between the size of uh, the... the... Uh, I can't tell. I'll, <laughs> I'll send you a picture. Okay. <laughs> you better get Anyways. that checked out. Stat, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So for you, uh, Andrographis would be not an amazing starting place, uh, but... Uh, I, can't, I can't keep up with it when I try yeah. to introduce it. But maybe Dandelion. Egg? Maybe maybe start with a dandelion and mix it with something aromatic that helps with the um, that helps with the taste. Even even chamomile has a, if you steep it long enough or you chew the flowers, even that has some nice bitter principles that are often that overlooked. Work. That could work. Uh, so, so you might start with something that's a combination of bitter and carminative and work your way okay. up to the andrographis. Okay, I might try that out. I'll have to get back to you. Or maybe if I throw in like some fennel or some cardamom or something that has more flavor to it, maybe yes. it'll kind of mask it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Um, so yes, I think the other question that we had talked about talking about, if that made sense via email was parietal cells and, mm. you know, stomach acid is something again that I think in, mm. in all of our professions, it's probably so misunderstood where it's just like oh just gargle for 10 minutes a day vigorously until you tear up and it's like well that's not appealing or just take betaine hcl 
eight capsules a meal for the rest of your life out of stories to you later. Um, but I'm curious to pick your brain a little bit about the, uh, and for those of you who don't know, parietal cells are the cells in the stomach that make stomach acid and they're kind of a big deal. Um, so if I may, let's open the floor for that. Yeah. So the production of stomach acid is, a, is this fun, uh, you know, chemical dance uh, where, uh, um, oh man, my brain just blinked uh oh shoot what's the what's the enzyme uh um carbonic anhydrase uh, so the the zinc dependent mm -hmm. enzyme in your gastric parietal cells uh, uh they're they're the first step in the creation of uh, of the free hydrogen ions uh, that get pumped through our proton pumps into the gastric lumen where they interact with the chloride and create hydrochloric acid so we've got this zinc dependent enzyme that is uh, is breaking water apart uh, and uh, creating bicarbonate to push out into the blood and uh, free hydrogen ions to push uh, into uh, the stomach mm -hmm. the the that process is a uh, fun to explore and sometimes you know raging zinc deficiencies very strongly influence uh, the the or suppress the production of stomach acid. Most people have adequate uh, blood chloride. It's not like uh, our nation is suffering from a salt deficiency. And, uh, no. uh, and so I think the often overlooked component of uh, the parietal cell, well, the two overlooked components is number one, what stimulates the parietal cells to produce stomach acid? That's a, a combination of uh, acetylcholine from the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, histamine and gastrin. And uh, our gastrin is initially released uh, in that cephalic phase, in the anticipatory phase where oh. we're thinking about food and we start to chew. And, and that starts the gastrin release process, uh, which is then reinforced with stretch receptors in the stomach and uh, chemoreceptor sensing protein in the stomach. But it, it starts uh, with thinking about food, with uh, smelling food, with tasting food, yeah. with engaging our senses which also tends to shift uh, our, our autonomic nervous system, which is the autonomic nervous system is not like a sympathetic dominant, parasympathetic dominant, right? It's, it's this, con all of our tissues are innervated with, uh, with both branches and it's this constant mm -hmm. tug of war so that, so that we can adapt and shift pretty rapidly, right? Mm -hmm. and so uh, the, the, the parasympathetic shift from engaging our senses, especially the smell and volatile compounds, engaging the, the limbic system and uh, encouraging the parasympathetic response. Uh, all of that starts uh, the parietal cells uh, uh, converting uh, water into uh, hydrogen ions and, and bicarbonate. So I think that's often overlooked. And then the other big thing that is often overlooked is the concentration gradient of hydrogen ions in the stomach versus in the parietal cells is wild. It's uh, like around 4 million to one. And the energy required to mm. push hydrogen across that concentration gradient is significant, which is why half the volume of our gastric parietal cells uh, are taken up by mitochondria. We need tons of ATP to, uh, to push hydrogen into the stomach to create hydrochloric acid. 
all of our mitochondrial nutrients uh, are essential for stomach acid production. And, and this is most obviously uh, apparent when you have uh, iron deficient anemia and you have a decreased mitochondrial ATP production because of uh, the iron deficiency, which then leads to uh, hyperchlorhydra, achlorhydra, low stomach acid, right? Uh, which is needed to uh, absorb non-heme iron. So then you get into this uh, cycle mm. where uh, anemia suppresses digestive fire and digestive fire is, and when I say digestive fire, I mean, all of the processes of uh, digestive catabolism, all of the, the breaking down processes. Yeah. So we have to digestive have- gusto, if you Yeah. Will. We've got to have energy uh, for fire, and we've got to have fire for the absorption of nutrients to create energy. Mm. So we get in this vicious cycle where mitochondrial nutrient deficiencies, in my opinion, lead to low stomach acid production, which will lead to uh, poor absorption, which reinforces that whole thing. And that makes so much sense based on like what, like 98% of our patients, Amy, honestly, because what have we said every freaking podcast episode that if you're not nutrient replete, if you're under eating and yeah. having massive food issues, if you're not getting adequate nutrition, you're not going to have nutrients you need to build up your body and keep it healthy and run enzymes, but also boom, like you're not going to have the energy to do basic things like make stomach acid. So you might not have to take eight betaine HCL pills every single day of your life. You might just have to eat more food and get more calories. And then you might miraculously start making stomach acid like you're supposed to. If you're me, you might need uh a few B12 shots to correct your lifelong B12 deficiency. And then all of a sudden your digestion miraculously improves. Uh, you know, like right. there's a, there's so many layers to it uh, that yeah. uh, I think it's, it's easy to, uh, to get stuck in the baiting HCL and bitters rut uh, without mm -hmm. actually looking at uh, all of the other components required for the production of, uh, of, of digestifier, for the production of hydrochloric acid. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you combine that with, uh, with strong, uh, persistent, sympathetic uh, stimulation that moves all of your blood from your, from your internal organs outwards for that fight or flight response. Uh, yeah. And uh, you wind up getting atrophy of your mucosal layer so that when uh, you finally relax and start producing stomach acid, it actually burns and doesn't feel good in your belly. And then that makes you uh, unconsciously not really like relaxation very much if you feel bad in your belly, you know? And so we, my work uh, is about, my, my work clinically and in teaching students is uh, about identifying uh, which of the of the numerous vicious cycles you're stuck in and where we can apply the most leverage to break the cycles yeah yeah kind yeah, of like throwing, throwing a bit of a monkey wrench in one of those vicious cycles and trying to have some yeah. point where you can intervene yeah so i've i've never seen kind of explicitly laid out uh, the mitochondrial uh, nutrients required for atp production that's something that uh, i came up with uh, i don't know just 8 or 10 years ago probably and when i when i started shifting my focus uh, 
from just bitters uh, and uh, HCL into, uh, hey, what's deeper? I really started getting better results with my clients and have to say like a non-anemic iron deficiency is so much more prevalent uh, than uh, I would have ever thought and, and that I think mainstream uh, medicine probably recognizes. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I've mm -hmm. seen people that their digestion sucked uh, until their ferritin hit 40 or 50 and then all of a sudden their digestion started getting better. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of heme iron versus non-heme iron since you don't need the hydrochloric acid for for heme iron absorption and I find that's a really helpful way to to break the vicious cycle of iron deficiency leading to low stomach acid leading to poor iron absorption. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a line of supplements. You actually turned me on to them a few years back, but there's a proferrin is the mm -hmm. brand name and you can get them on Amazon now, but I've had some patients do really well with those as well. Um, yeah, Proferrin and, and they recently, um, after years of me begging, probably not just me, but uh, you know, I'm- No, I'm it, was you. To, it was you. But uh, they, they, they recently created a, a line called Clear that has no mm -hmm. additives. So, so amazing. In lieu of that, uh, uh, you know, ancestral health spleen supplements uh, are super iron rich. Uh, liver and liver supplements are super heme yeah. iron rich. Uh, yeah, lots of ways to go about that, but uh, the proferrin yeah. is one of my favorites too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Amy, I want to be cognizant of the time so that you can get your pup to the vet. I would. <laughs> Definitely talk with Thomas all day, every day. Um, but I think we hit a lot of the big things that were on all of our radar. But maybe we'll have to have you back on the pod, Thomas, because this was a lot of fun. That'd and be great. I know, like, I, I took away a couple of really big clinical points that I think will help my patients. So I'm really grateful that you came on the pod. And well, for those of you guys, again, maybe you weren't paying attention to me when I did the intro, but Thomas has a book. You can get it on Amazon and various other book type places called The Modern Herbal Dispensatory. It's awesome. I have many a sticky note in mine. And you could go visit him at the Eclectic School of Herbal Medicine. I think that's the URL, eclecticschoolofherbalmedicine.com. And you have, there's actually a, a student-run clinic, so you can work with the herbal students um, and get some coaching and some help with the students that are in his program. Uh, there's online courses. I mean, there's normally when it's not COVID times, you do like classes out where you are. So if you're local to North Carolina, you could go actually take a class and meet Thomas in person. Um, but all sorts of great, great stuff on the website. So be sure to check out his website and his book. Um, Amy, any closing remarks? I think that's about a wrap from what I've No, this has been really great. Um... I think the last point I'm glad we were able to to get in the ATP stomach uh, stuff in because I think that's so so key and I think it aligns with too like what we always talk about what you were discussing like under eating not only is that weakening your resilience from a nervous system standpoint if you're not getting enough nutrition in but again thinking about it from a stomach acid standpoint you know it could be depleting ATP and all these other things so more reinforcement there to continue our work with making sure people are well-nourished. Yeah. 
Yes. Thank, Thank you, you, Thomas. That's why we, we have you knew on. We liked you. Yes. And look, I don't know a better way to wrap up the pod. So guys, as always... Thank you for tuning in. If you are watching this on YouTube, please click the like, the subscribe, the bell, do whatever you do on YouTube and leave comments. We do go back through the YouTube channel comment section, and that's where we're mining comments for our Q&A episodes. So go ahead and leave a comment if you have a question or something that you want to shout out to us. We also have an Instagram channel. My God, what is it, Amy? Is it IBS Freedom Pod or Podcast? And we have an email address. It is ibsfreedompod at gmail.com. So holler at us. Let me know if you have questions and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for having me on. 